Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Brent Phillips, producer of the podcast, and today I'm going to guest host a short interview with Brett Kinsella. Brett is the founder of VoiceBot AI, which is a leading source of news and information on conversational AI and voice technology. Welcome, Brett. I've been aware of your work for quite a long time, and it's an honor to virtually meet you finally. Well, this is a great honor to like come to your audience and talk about some of these issues. And I think from a perspective or an intent that might be a little bit different than what I'm usually dealing with in each day. So I'm looking forward to this. Cool. Yeah, we try to cross-connect staff from humanitarian organizations and students, researchers, and AI developers, and get them talking about humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence and sensitize tech folks to the humanitarian community and needs and crises and things like that, and data sources especially. So we've been talking a lot about ChatGPT, and uh, you do a lot of work in the conversational AI field. And it's kind of cool because you've actually created a community around voice and conversational AI. And people really admire you and, and check out your work and learn a lot from it. But we're curious, how does the voice community feel about ChatGPT? You know, I'll just tell you that, I'll answer your question for you in one second, but I will say that, you know, ultimately what we've done over the years is we've just tried to provide really good market education. Sometimes that's news, sometimes that's market data, sometimes that's analysis but really to help people understand what the changes are from an AI standpoint. And then particularly when there's some dialogue associated with that, whether you're speaking or whether you're typing, you know, voice and chat and what that means from an application standpoint, from an implementation standpoint. And chat GTP is actually really a fascinating development. You might also know that I founded the Synthedia newsletter an online conference about eight or nine months ago. And part of that was a recognition that there were a number of technologies that we covered in voicebot.ai that I always felt were character actors in someone else's film. So whether it be voice clones or digital humans, or in, in that time, like text to image generators, but before those really blew up, and uh, large language models, which is, you know, ChatGTP. And so we'd written 150 articles. Now, granted, we'd written 4,000 plus articles in voicebot. And, you know, aside from all the other research and data we collect, it's just like, News is a big part of what we do. And, you know, Eric, my head writer, and I sat around and we was like, oh, we've done 150 articles in this category. Maybe we just need to name it, name it something, right? And like put them together. And this idea is like, instead of being character actors in someone else's film, maybe we have an ensemble cast. And if we've got these five or six different technologies, we'll have enough content or enough news, I should say, to write about every day. And then also the people who are interested in adopting these technologies don't want to hear about one of those technologies every day, but like every day they might want to hear about one of five of those. And so like a new, you know, once a week they're hearing about, you know, one technology and things like that. So in any event, I talked to a bunch of founders of companies in the space, talked to them about like what my thesis was, I guess, at the time, saying sort of an underrepresented or, you know, not enough interest generated in the space. And they love the idea. Well, some of them didn't. Some of them were like, whoa, no, we're going to be huge. Like, I'm like, okay, good luck. Um, but the other thing that was part of that was that when you think about generative AI, synthetic media, voice, a lot of times each of those technologies has its own momentum, has great use cases, and they can kind of grow. But when you put them together, 
sometimes magic happens. And a lot of times I was looking at synthetic media in general, and we think about voice, or excuse me, audio, video, text, and image. And then we have this other concept around characters and conversations. And I was like, oh, when they put these together, actually people are more interested and they're like they're, they're better applications. And so they think of themselves as these separate segments, but really it's all one segment because they should be being used together. Okay, so we put all this together. And, you know, interestingly enough, after that, Stable Diffusion came out and the journey came out. So the, the interest level in text to image generators rose significantly. A lot of people didn't know that Instruct GPT came out in February. And if you're familiar with ChatGTP, it does not exist without Instruct GTP. I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the yeah. Instruct technology is the alignment technology, which enables the large language model to have that conversation and to respond to your requests like you would want a, an assistant to respond. So then one of the things that happened was this GPT 3.5 and some of the Instruct models had already led some of the companies, the software companies in the space to start utilizing that, start thinking about training and fine tuning. And one of the first to come out was this company called Rally, where they're a legal back office SaaS company. And they started using these models to build an assistant. It's called Spellbook. And it helps lawyers draft contracts. And you know, I talked to the founders about this and they're like, well, you know, we looked at GitHub Copilot, which is probably the most underreported solution in this space. Cause I know people have been using this since before it actually was publicly available. And that does code completion. And you know, talk about a three to five X productivity increase for a lot of developers because it's like ChatGTP, but for software development, it's amazing. It's based on the OpenAI Codex backend. But they, they looked at that and said, oh, you know, legal language is kind of like code, right? Could we do this? And they did. And like, I looked at this and I said, oh, this is amazing. So just in case people are not familiar with it, which I assume most people are not, what does it do? I need to write a contract for the state of California for IP protection and a, an NDA for, you know, with a certain amount of compensation between the two for like some sort of, and just writes the whole thing. Or you can type in something, I need an indemnity clause for the state of New York, you know, or I need something for GDPR or whatever that, it just like fills it into your contract, right? And like as a user, you can, uh, you can accept or edit those types of things. The other thing it does is it'll actually read a contract and it'll tell you what's missing. We interviewed um, a lawyer who works for a humanitarian aid organization uh -huh. in Ukraine. And he's saying the same thing. He'd love to have an AI that can write a lot of these contracts, but he was hoping that maybe they don't write them very well so that he doesn't lose his job. But well, you nevertheless, know it it's really helpful. Yeah, and it's like it's, a, it's basically like having a, an associate right out of law school. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as the trained lawyer, you have to tell them what you want. You have to look at what they've done, figure out what is missing, right? Because they're not trained in this. This is law school doesn't train you to become a lawyer. It trains you to uh, take exams and like get out of law school. So, so in any event, we, we looked at this, but there's, there's a larger point here. And this is about this concept of a co-pilot. So, you know, Microsoft has something called a co-pilot, but th this is where we come back to the voice assistant space. When we think about voice assistants and the way they've been, people are familiar with these, Alexa, Siri, but maybe they've also, you know, come across some of the ones that companies roll out. Comcast, if you're a, a cable subscriber here in the US, you know, for your TV. Well, what do they do? They sit across from you. They're facing you essentially, even though they're disembodied, 
And then you say, I would like this, and they give it back to you, or they say, I don't understand, right? You know, basically, that's that's it. And there's this whole other model that we've been thinking about for a long time in the AI industry. And I I founded VoiceBot in 2016, like by accident. And that's not that's not important to the story, but I'd actually been working in the space since 2013, where we were building some of these voice assistants. And one of the things we've been thinking about is like, okay, for an assistant, it's great that it can like respond, request response. Wouldn't it be great if it could do things for us on our behalf? Like we're not there and it does something for us. We send them out in the world and we don't need, so we think about these voice assistants with agency. I hadn't been thinking as much until about a year and a half ago about this, this co-pilot. It's not the assistant that's across the table from you. It's not the assistant you send out of the world. It's the one that sits beside you. It's the expert assistant that helps you become better, faster at the job you're doing at any given time. We'd love to see this like in the humanitarian sector, like you have humanitarian actors and they're sitting around the conference table and planning uh, logistics for an operation. And, you know, this is the future, being able to just ask it, well, who else is working in the field and who has the capacity to deliver aid to this, this community that's a remote community? So, you know, we love that idea. And it's not that deterministic response that a lot of people are getting from ChatGTP, like you think about it, but it's this idea that you're collaborating. It's a collaboration partner that just happens to have expertise that you might not have at your fingertips or might not even know. And so, you know, Spellbook I thought was really interesting and then ChatGTP came out. And ChatGTP has been very important on a number of levels. The first thing I'll say from a voice industry, because this, this is a long way around to your original question, uh, my friend Tom Hewitson, who runs a, a voice interactive games company out of London, was on our uh, Year in Review podcast. And one of the topics was ChatGTP. It's like, this came out three weeks ago. What do you think? Like, how's that impact? He said, the biggest impact ChatGTP has had on the conversational AI industry is it got people excited again. Yeah, that's so true. Across the humanitarian community, people are sort of huddling together and asking themselves, you know, what should we be doing now? It's catalyzed so much interest and, and uh, I don't want to say worry, but there's just a lot of interest in in this. So that's so cool. Well, there might be worry too. I will say though, the worry is based on a lot of unknowns and some speculation about the things we do know. The, the key thing about ChatGTP is that it's, we talk about this in terms of alignment, but the the experience of it is something that everybody is immediately comfortable with because almost everybody has used a chat message interface with another human. And a lot of us, almost all of us have probably used it with a chat bot or something like that as well. And just the layout and everything was very important so that everyone could use it and the responses were very good. In fact, much better than what we were seeing like in 2020 or even early 2021, somewhat better than what you would have seen in Instruct GPT if you were actually working in the back end with open AI stuff like I was. But what happened was people had such a good experience. They started thinking like, how can this help me? Right. And I think back to what I was doing in tech in 1997 when, you know, I'd had a web browser for three years at that point, I guess, and had been doing different things with it. But by 1997, everyone was like, wow, this web is really interesting. What can I do with it? I remember that. I worked in, um, I worked in Bosnia and then afterwards we worked in uh, Kosovo during the Kosovo conflict. And a lot of humanitarian organizations were like using email and then starting to share things on the web. And they were thinking up, well, let's have a web, a web portal so refugees can actually share their their information and their whereabouts. Like I just, you know, I escaped from where where I was and I'm here in this camp in Albania or Bosnia or Croatia and, you know, hey world, I'm here. So yeah, I remember those days, people were so excited about the web and 
platforms and things like that. Yeah, and I think if you look at if you look at like mobile, which would be sort of the next big thing, or social, those are actually modifications. Those were extensions of what we had enabled through the web. When we come to a lot of the large language model or the generative AI solutions, these are actually very different. These aren't a modification of the web, like different format, different sharing environment, different connectivity. This is new stuff. And that is, I think, the reason why so many people are excited. And in the conversational AI industry, a lot of people are excited because they're like, wow, look at all these new things that we could potentially do that we haven't been able to do in the past. Their buyers who buy conversational AI, voice AI technologies are thinking about new things that they could do. So that's generating sort of more interest. And there's a lot of heat in the space. Plus then there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are saying like, I know there's a gap in this space. I used to work in this space. I'm going to found a business. Now I will say that it's not all wine and roses because I just spoke at a conference yesterday for conversation designers. And the head of the Conversation Design Institute, Hans Van Dam, told me the most common email in his inbox in the last six weeks has been, are, are conversation designers now obsolete? I was just gonna ask you that. I was gonna ask like, what happened to dialogue systems? Like is dialogue systems as a, maybe a university, a, a master's program in dialogue systems, is that all of a sudden obsolete or you know, conversational designers? And uh, yeah, this, it's interesting. Has the field kind of split in two and what's happening to the side that got left behind? And is it gonna, you know, obviously dialogue systems is still relevant. So how is it going to be, how is it gonna be incorporated again? Like how do they land on their feet and join the party? I think it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, my hypothesis here is that conversation designers are gonna be more valued a year from now than they are today. And part of that is because of the innovation that's coming out, but also you've used ChatGTP. A lot of people who are listening will have used it. And the difference between using it as a consumer in sort of these limited ways that aren't connected to the other activities of the organization or the enterprise is one thing. Trying to create it as a capability that might be outward facing to your customers, your, your members, whatever it might be, is a completely different consideration and who actually has the background, the experience to think about the new interaction models, uh, the new mental models that people are going to have when they use this? Well, conversation designers, actually, that's what they do. They are the user experience experts in anything that involves conversation, ChatGTP, and all these other type of variants that are going to come from that are conversations. And so my contention is that there will be more interest in the types of assistance, the conversational interactions that they've been designing to date. There's going to be new interest in these type of open-ended conversations that you can have with large language models behind them. And they're going to need conversations designers for all of those. And the, the key thing for the conversations designers is they just need to learn some new things. They need to learn about these things and how to use those as their co-pilot as, yeah. opposed, to use it, as opposed to just wait for it to replace them. Yeah, because I was just going to ask you, imaginary groups are excited and they're worried, and they're also wondering how to spend their money in 2023 and where to focus their activities. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, they need to start thinking about, like, we're losing narrative control to algorithms, but what information do we feed algorithms to kind of regain some narrative control? And then how do we help fine tune and train these new models? And that's through conversation design and thinking about, well, what did ChatGPT output? What's the ideal output? 
and how do I train it to to return the ideal output? So it's an interesting sort of a circle. So you know, I think this is important, and I think it's a good time for humanitarian actors to jump in and help out, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that makes sense. I think it's true for everybody. I think everybody needs to think about this. It's just like in the late '90s, people had to really think about how their job and role was going to change because of the rise of the web, but also how they could use that as a tool in order to be better at what they do or to do new things that they weren't able to do before. So I, I agree with that 100%. And I will say that since we were talking about conversational systems, 100% of conversational systems today essentially provide a deterministic re response. It's not a large language model that's probabilistic and, and guessing, even though even if they guess well most of the time. You know, next year, 99.5% will still be deterministic systems because it's going to take a long time for people to absorb this, to figure out what works, what doesn't. They're going to do a lot of testing this year. And if you think about what a large language model does in terms of predicting the next word, it doesn't afford you with that much control. Uh, if you want control, you have to build these filters on top of it, and that takes some time. And even then, you don't have full control. So there's certain types of things that I would fully expect people on this call are going to say, no, it has to be this specific type of response. And so then what they need to do is they need to build what they call a neurosymbolic system or a hybrid system, which has some very similar types of mechanisms that you would get from a chatbot today, which has a database of answers based on the intent, plus some of the ability to do open-ended for areas that you believe will be very worthwhile. I'd say from a humanitarian standpoint, one of the things that they'd be most concerned about is the issue of confabulation, uh, also known as hallucination. And that's that the large language models don't know where the sources are. After they train, they don't know what the sources are. They don't know what's true and what's not true. And so they tend to state things as fact that are not. And I would think from a humanitarian perspective, this could be very problematic because it could mislead people and they would make, uh, they would start drawing conclusions that might be counterproductive to the mission of the organization. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're editing a podcast interview right now with Aaron Margolis from the Environmental Protection Agency. And he was mentioning that. He was saying that before we see benefits, we might see threats. For humanitarian actors, like we might start to see misinformation before we see an application that we can use for our work. So, you know, it's interesting to think about that. What would you say to humanitarian actors who aren't involved in technology and aren't really familiar with the, the sort of accelerating pace of advancement? Like, how do you say, this is a big deal, actually, you guys. Like, this is a really big deal. How do you get that across, that the magnetic pull of the Earth has just flipped? Or has it? Am I just overstating this? Or We actually have the seed of the flipping, but it's not flipped yet. So what's going to happen is large language models, ChatGTP, they're very hot right now. They're very popular. And actually, they're going to be for at least another two to three quarters. At some point, like the interest is, I don't know if it's going to be three quarters or two years, and it's going to be less. Um, and people are going to say, oh, no, this is terrible. I don't want to do this anymore. But then like a year later, everyone be like, of course, I was always doing this. It was amazing. So that's just the way of technology cycles. It's always like that. But I will say this is, this is fundamentally different. When we moved to the web, the key difference there was that we lived in an analog world and all of a sudden we were going to start doing things in the digital world. We didn't have any digital artifacts, assets, so anything in the analog world we need to convert, but we didn't understand what the interaction models, the mental models would be and what we could actually do. So we had to learn that whole process. 
when we went to mobile, we were really just refactoring for a different type of user interface, a different type of user experience. So it wasn't like it was new in experiential standpoint, but not at the base level, right? And the same thing with social. When we get to the generative AI solutions, it is, again, uh, different. Up to this point in history, if we wanted to create something, some human had to create it or some machine that a human created had to create something. Now, we can we still have the human in the loop a little bit, but that might go away eventually. But let's just say the human. The human has to think about how the, they do this prompt, and then most of the creation process is done by the AI. That's very different. And if you think about content production, just like any type of media, which, and I think about this not as like news media, but any type of like artifact, which is digital, which people can read or watch or, or, or look at. Uh, if you think about like the, the pre-web days, you know, you had people who would create analog content and then digital, we just like adopted that model. And then we, now we have people who create digital content and that was faster than the analog content. But then when we moved to uh, social media, we're like, oh, we'll just let anybody create content, right? Anyone create media. And then we had YouTube and Facebook and all these other things. And we're like, oh, several orders of magnitude more content is available. But we've run up to the limit of that, right? We like people who are going to create content, create it today, fine. Platforms distribute it, great. Uh, sometimes not great, but you know, in general, probably net positive. Now we're at this point where, oh, we are we're content constrained. What's the next leap? Now the next leap is actually AI can create hundreds or thousands of artifacts at equal or better quality as a human in a small fraction of the time. Yeah. And so, okay, so what do they do? They need to try the systems. They need to experiment, they need to tinker. Uh, when the web came about in the 90s, you couldn't understand it unless you were on it. Once you were on it, then you could start to understand it. Uh, because yeah, again, it didn't have the mental models. Yeah. To, to like understand what it would be. I remember the first time I saw that, like a website, you know, again, it was in the early nineties and it was, wow, it's just so cool. Like in a university darkened room in a lab somewhere, exactly. you know, yes. somebody showed me the internet, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Like humanitarian actors, the average humanitarian actor, Doctors Without Borders or Oxfam or Mercy Corps. I think it's good for them to start experimenting with, you know, put in a query into chat GPT and realize you can just type in anything and then sort of follow the rabbit hole down to learning about something or to just see what information it can access and start to think about what you'd like to ask a chatbot tomorrow, better chatbot, like what range of things you'd like to do with it. So I think this is important for groups to start creating lists of questions. Absolutely. hundred percent. And I, and I would recommend people also look at the text image generators and ex experiment with those. Even if you're not going to use these on a daily basis, you're actually starting to get this feedback from the system so that you can understand what's going on, where you might apply something, where you might not. It might not be obvious to you that day, but six months from now, when something else comes out, it'd be like, oh, okay, I understand. This is kind of like that. It's a little bit different. And then you can start to develop your own mental models around how to use it, how you might use it, how to apply it in a meaningful way for whatever you're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, this is really great input. We have a, a question that we ask all our guests and I know this is a short interview, but I'd love to ask you the question. But before I do, the question is about uh, envision a futuristic AI application and what would you love to see exist? But just before I do, going back to queries and questions, like think of your favorite humanitarian group, your favorite cause in the world, 
what would you like to be able to ask ChatGPT? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent idea. Like what range of questions would you be interested in? Um, well, the first thing I would do, like just to like think about, like to answer your question, I'm really interested in context. So information in context in particular. And so one of the things that will happen is if you go to any type of humanitarian website is you'll go there and they'll tell you what they think you should know. But that might not have anything to do with my question, right? Or I might go to like a humanitarian organization and think they're like, and, and misunderstand their scope, their mission scope. Maybe they have a broader mission than I think they do. Maybe it's narrower. But then like, I might ask them a question and that just that alone, and they could give me contacts and they could say, oh no, well, we don't do that. But like, we recommend our sister organization that does that, you know, our partner organization. So I think that that would be the number one thing that I would think about is like just being able to ask those types of questions. Because if you think about it, like you're in this every day. So you're up to speed and I bet you can't keep track of all of it. Um, what about the rest of us, right? Who care about a lot of these issues, but then just, you know, we're trying to figure out a way that we can have, you know, that, that we can know what we should know in order to figure out the best, like what we need to know, what we should be doing, what we should care about. And so, for example, like I just think about it, like Amnesty International, if you want to do it like a shout out, obviously, like it's sort of like the gold standard in this space in many ways. And come to think of it, I don't know what they've done in the last two years. Like, I, I just don't. Like, I assume there's a lot of great things. And I probably have read articles and they've done some things. You know, just to be able to go there and say, like, you know, what are the top five activities or achievements at Amnesty International in the last four years? And just like, you know, because think about it. Like, what were they doing in 2016 or 2018 versus during the COVID years and during now? How is the rise of authoritarianism, even in, you know, across all nations, but even in some, you know, formerly or mostly democratic societies, right? Like, how is that, like, how has that changed? Like, those are all questions I might have. I bet there's some people at Amnesty International that could answer that question, but they don't know to publish it on the website. Amnesty, you know, they're such a great group and they're so, they're so on top of looking good and they have a kind of a brand image and all that, but it's true. There's a lot of information that doesn't come to the surface because of the, the way they present. Yeah. Um, or doctors without borders. Like, you know, if I think about that, like, what if I'm, what if I'm in a, a place where I could use the assistance of doctors without borders? Like, how do I figure out like what they could provide? Like over what time frame? what's the scope and scale? What do they not do? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, that's an immediate thing that comes to mind. I think it's it seems really simplistic, but it's actually hard to implement because the range of questions people have are very broad. So it's hard to like just do a chat bot or do an FAQ, which is going to answer everything. And unfortunately, there's this whole idea around product development and, and technology is you are not your user. Most of the time, you're not. Like, for example, you work in a humanitarian organization. If you do that you're not the person trying to find out information about a humanitarian organization. Now you might have this experience when you look at other humanitarian, but, but you actually, you're savvy. So you know how to like navigate the, you know, ping someone, you know, on LinkedIn and you know, like, like, what is this going on? And like, you can get that. 
Whereas someone who's not in this every day, like me, I'm in technology, like, where do I start? It's hard to get that across to humanitarian actors that they need to rethink outreach and engagement and outreach and engagement in the age of AI and in the age of these new large language models. So, you know, one thing I try to get across to people is that across the humanitarian community, a lot of groups are coalescing around sharing data through open data sharing frameworks. And, uh, you know, AI applications can actually plug into this data stream yes. and the, look at the connections between Amnesty International and Doctors Without Borders, for example, and what have they collaborated. And you have, you know, highly structured XML data that you could actually look through and analyze whether they have or haven't and where and all these kind of things. So, you know, I think the next stage of, you know, sort of AI is building these intermediate models and things that can actually dig into the database and answer these questions for you, you know, these complex queries. So it's kind yeah. of cool, at least the humanitarian community is, share, is trying to share data in a highly structured manner and have it available to AI applications. So this is a big plus. I think that's great. I think there there probably is need for some sort of, maybe maybe your organization could help with this, some sort of consortium that would help uh, the interface between the humanitarian agencies that have data and the AI builders, because the AI builders, like they don't know where to go. But if they said, oh, like I had this one place I could go and they could, they, they have a catalog of all the different APIs or they've created some sort of mission statement about how they're going to work together or all these other types of things, like make it easy for, for the AI companies to do this, then they'd be much more likely to tap into that for their training models. And then anybody who's building a hybrid model could actually easily build in, uh, you know, essentially you think of it as a filter or an intent that would, that for certain types of queries, wouldn't just like blindly go to the large language model to do text generation, would actually go and source directly from some of these databases and, and make sure that they put together, put out the correct type of information, useful information. And that's, that's a feature that I think some of these solutions would be happy to provide to their users they might even say like, so for example, like we already have connections to all of these APIs. So any of your users who are asking about humanitarian aid or humanitarian organizations will have accurate and up-to-date information all the time. I'm really glad that we had this conversation. I think it's really vital for the humanitarian community and for AI developers as well to think about these things. So uh, what futuristic AI application would you love to see exist? It's essentially the same one that I've wanted for some time because it has it's not even close to fruition yet. And that is, I want this assistant with agency. I want this helper that can represent me in the world, do things for me when I'm not there, anticipate my needs, you know do things like if I need something, it knows to like just purchase it and it shows up at my door before I come. Like because I think I mean, what is technology good for? It's so that we can spend more time focused on things that matter. And a lot of those are, the humanistic qualities that have been taken away from, you know, well, let's think about it. I mean, historically, humans have always had to spend more time on survival-oriented things than humanities or human humanistic pursuits. But that's what technology does, is it gives us, you know, maybe leisure time, maybe headspace to think about things. We live in an overwhelmingly cluttered environment. It's completely unrecognizable to people 100 years ago, much less 400 years ago. We've adapted to it somewhat, I'd say off, often not very well. But if we had some of these tools in order to unclutter the environment, take care of some things for us, then we could get back to like the pursuit of some things I think that are very, very meaningful.
And like, and I'll just say that, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of the big humanitarian organizations. I would say that the one that I'm most interested in is World Central Kitchen, Jose Andreas and what he's done with that. And, you know, I could see, I could see a lot of things that a company like or an organization like that could do as well, you know, with some of these technologies. And, you know, maybe there's a humanitarian organization out there that introduces these technologies to different places that might not have all the advantages we have here in the United States or in the Western world. And, and if you think about the impact that it has for us, which seems like an increase in convenience most of the time, it might have a much more profound impact for some of those communities. Yeah, I totally agree. I've got some great contacts with that Norwegian Refugee Committee, and they're really interested in this. And I think, I think you'll be seeing a lot of them in the future. And the International Rescue Committee, um, they have a great signpost initiative, helping refugees learn more about services around them that they can access. But they're doing a lot of work around data, open data sharing, data analysis, and a lot of people are piling onto their initiatives. So I, I can already start thinking about some leaders in the field who might really step up and help to advance this. So Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's been a great conversation and I appreciate your time and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And I, I would just tell the people listening today, if you have initiatives going on and you want to, you want people to know about them, I mean, we publish. So we make the world aware of what's happening. So both through the Synthedia newsletter and through voicebot.ai, if you want to learn more, you can always go to those places too. And we have like a really good YouTube channel with VoiceBot as well, which provides educational content. And maybe that's the fastest way to get up to speed on these things. But definitely tinker, go use them. Because don't just yeah. like listen to other people talking about it, like develop your own, your own experience so that you can draw on that. I love that. Thank you so much, Brett. Again, thank you. And this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.